0: Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's guest is Dennis Dwyer, and Dennis has made several trips to Alaska, having driven from Louisiana to Alaska first in 1987. And Dennis has written several books on paddling, Prince William Sound and The Inside Passage, as well as running a popular online group dedicated to inside passage paddlers. So we're going to get a chance to talk to Dennis and learn all about his journeys and his books. But before we get to our chat with Dennis, James and Simon at OnlineSeaKayaking.com continue to produce great content to help you evolve as a paddler and as a coach. If you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here is your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com, and use the coupon code PTBpodcast at checkout, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. And as well, Level 6 continues to be a great supporter of Paddling the Blue, and we have a special offer just for you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, visit their website at level6.com and use the coupon code PTBpodcast at checkout for 10% off your order there as well. So with that, enjoy today's episode with Dennis Dwyer. Welcome, Dennis. Thanks for joining Paddling the Blue. Thanks, John. Yeah. So you, we're here to talk about some trips to Alaska, uh, but tell us a little bit first how you got started paddling.
1: Well, I guess I got started probably in the 1970s when I was like in my 20s, just paddling on local rivers in South Louisiana. Then in the early 80s, I got a little bit interested in whitewater kayaking, and I started going throughout the southeast on some of the rivers in the southeast, and then um, sea kayaking came about. And I started doing that, paddling on Lake Pontchartrain near New Orleans and out in the Gulf of Mexico to some of the offshore islands. It didn't take too long before I started looking for other places to go sea kayaking and uh, started going up to uh, the area around uh, the San Juan Islands off the coast of Washington. and. The waters between vancouver island and mainly british columbia and then finally when i had enough time i decided to, i wanted to do the i had always wanted to, wanted to do it for a long time but it takes a, a couple of months to do it i decided to do the inside passage
0: all right so now your first alaska trip was 1987
1: is that right that's right uh myself and a couple of friends we loaded boats on uh my van and we drove from New Orleans to uh, Whittier, Alaska.
0: That's a that's quite a drive. Yes, it is.
1: <laughs> we launched from Whittier, uh, paddled around for I guess about a week, did some exploring and saw the whales and the glaciers and uh, icebergs and experienced a little bit of Alaska weather. Had a pretty good time. Experienced Alaska mosquitoes for the first time.
0: Oh yeah. So now at that time you uh, you couldn't drive into Whittier, right? You had to take the take the train in.
1: You take, you, you, at, in 87, you would put your vehicle on a flatbed, on a train uh, of nothing but flatbed cars,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, so you and a whole bunch of other vehicles would be on a car full of flat, on a train full of flatbeds, and you'd go through the Whittier Tunnel, then when you got to Whittier, you'd drive off the train, then you could drive around in Whittier, but you couldn't go anywhere else, because it's like a... Whittier is an isolated town. Right. The only way in and out by vehicle is through that tunnel. It's been updated now. It still has train tracks, but you can drive through it. Right. And you can only drive one, you know, they uh, open it like for one hour, you can go in one direction. And for the next hour, you can go in the other direction.
0: Yeah, you got to time it right. Otherwise, you're sitting for a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They got got, uh, gates and stoplights and such so that, you know, only vehicles can go one way at a time.
0: So tell us about that drive from, uh, from New Orleans up to, uh, up to Whittier.
1: Well, it's not for everybody. You know, uh, it's just hours and hours of, of driving. We would eat at restaurants along the way and stay at campgrounds, just uh, take it as it goes. It took us, I don't remember exactly what it took in 87, but probably about, about 10 days to drive there from New Orleans.
0: Fair amount of gravel too, right?
1: Parts of it were gravel up in, uh, when you, when in British, northern British Columbia and Alaska back in 87. It wasn't completely surfaced because in the wintertime, the hard surface roads would get damaged by the frost. So they just left it gravel and they would uh, have vehicles uh, out there all the time grading it so that it wouldn't get uh, rutted and washboard. And, it, you know, you could, you could drive 40, 50 miles an hour with no problem.
0: That's a, a long way at 45 40 to 50 miles an hour, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was only sections of it were like that. Most, of 90% of the road going up there is uh, asphalt or cement.
0: So um, so you started in, in New Orleans and then uh, started to take other trips, uh, going out to uh, the San Juan Islands and, and that area. Right. And so why did you start with Prince William Sound?
1: It's, I. Guess just because it's one of the first things I had heard about I must have read something about it and decided I wanted to go try. it Okay. No, nothing particularly special. I've probably seen some pictures of it in National Geographic or something and and wanted to go see it. If I would have had any idea I could have done something closer to the home. I might have tried going in the San Juan Islands off of uh, Bellingham sooner, but I didn't. I went to, all the way to Alaska. I just wanted to see it. Something about Alaska draws me. The the mountains, the, the snow-capped peaks, the whales. It's just a, di- a different way of life. The, oh. the people.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a special a, place, that's for sure. Yeah,
1: it's definitely special.
0: So tell us about that first trip in 1987. Uh, kayaking? Yeah, the uh, Prince William Sound trip in 87.
1: Yeah, well, um, we launched, and it was... Uh, raining which it rains about 80 percent of the time we found our way into uh one of the big uh, fjords up there i think it was i think the one we went into was called harriman fjord there's all these glaciers that come down into harriman fjord and uh cav off icebergs so that the fjords just full of icebergs which is kind of cool yeah and then there's gravel beaches all around where you can camp anywhere you want above high tide as long as, you know, you can spot where you can put a tent where high tide won't reach it. But uh, that's where I learned about currents and tides. Alaska's got these extreme tides, uh, two highs and two low tides every day. And so you have to learn how to deal with that and and know when high tide's going to happen and when low tide's going to happen because the tide changes affects the currents. Mm-hmm. For six hours, the current will be going in one direction. And for the next six hours, the current will be going in the other direction. So depending on where you want to go, either the tides can help you get there faster or they can hold you back. Sure. So you have to learn how to know what the current's going to do depending on what position the tide is in.
0: Yeah. You time it right to make sure you let the, let the water do the work for you.
1: That's, that's right.
0: That's right. <laughs> now, how many of you were on that trip?
1: Uh, it was myself and a couple of friends. Okay. So we uh, had three kayaks on top of my van and loaded all our gear in the back. Hit the road. I see. In '87, I was uh, 35. From my point of view now, I, we were just youngsters. <laughs> <laughs> 71 now.
0: So how long were you on that trip on, on uh, the water? That is.
1: We were probably on the water about a week. We okay. weren't out there too long none of us were real experienced with uh, or not experienced at all with Alaska waters we had just paddled in the southern you know Gulf of Mexico waters so we were experimenting and learning so we didn't plan on staying too long out there we had you know brought enough food and collected water while we were out there but we didn't plan on staying any longer that was right. about it
0: now, when you did this trip, had you done uh, the San Juan Islands and then those trip, those areas, by then?
1: When I did the uh, the nineteen eighty seven Prince William Sound trip. Yes. No. Ah, okay. No, no, I hadn't. We completely, I completely skipped over Washington and went straight to Alaska.
0: Ah, okay. I missed that. All right. Yeah, so I was thinking yeah. that you did some, uh, some of the Pacific Northwest and then made no. the jump up to Alaska. So you no. went right. Norway straight to Alaska, (laughs) yeah.
1: Yeah. Skipped all the in-between stuff, and then in later years, then I uh, started coming and uh, doing some paddling in the San Juans and uh, the uh, Strait between Johnstone Strait between uh, Vancouver Island and British Columbia. All right. So that's an area where there's a lot of orcas. The orcas come into that area during the summertime, so we started going there to see the orcas and the
0: humpbacks. So in 1987 how did you know your skills were ready for that trip?
1: Um I had I had paddled off the coast of uh Mississippi. We would launch from the coast of Mississippi and paddle out to uh the Gulf Islands. That's it's a string of islands in the Gulf of Mexico about 7 miles offshore. So we'd have to cover 7 miles of open water and uh I had done it sometimes in calm water, sometimes in rough water, so pretty sure i could handle it and i'd done some white water so i was i was used to rough water the, the main thing is just uh dealing with the environment the, the cold the mosquitoes uh the rain it's that's that's the thing that uh is the test yeah that's what that's what really tests you yeah
0: so tell us about some of those tests on that first 87 trip
1: <laughs> gee whiz boy that's a long time ago <laughs> uh <laughs> just a, i think the the main thing that that you have to deal with is the rain. It, it in Alaska, at least my experience in Alaska, my limited experience, is that uh, it doesn't come down in big heavy downpours. What will happen is you'll get like a, a drizzly light rain that could literally last for days. It could, you know, it'll be raining all night. It's raining when you get up in the morning. It's raining while you paddle. It's raining when you land in the afternoon and set up camp, and it's raining all the next night. You know, that, that kind of rain.
0: Yeah. But
1: it, it's not pouring down, and it's not heavy winds usually. It's just calm air with, with a light drizzle all the time. But you, you have to have the uh, experience and equipment to be able to put up with that. Yeah. You know, you have to be able to set up your tent in the rain and you have to be able to cook and clean up in the rain and, and uh, do camp chores and whatnot while it's raining. So that, I think that was one of the biggest things. And probably the next biggest thing was uh, the bugs. You have mosquitoes and black, fi- black flies and midges. Midges mm-hmm. are probably the worst <laughs> of, of the three because when they bite you, you itch for about a week where, you, where they bite you. So you have to be prepared for that. You have to have mosquito head nets and gloves for your hands, and you know, just be totally covered head to foot, because any exposed skin is going to get bitten. So just getting used to things like that was the biggest thing that we had to deal with.
0: But even with those two things, even with the bugs and even with the uh, with the rain, it's it's still a pretty magic place.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, the whales and just the scenery, the glaciers. Just every, everything that you see, the trees, the big conifers, it's just so, it's, especially from Louisiana, there's, there's, pretty, there's pretty areas in Louisiana, but Alaska looks so different with uh, the, the vegetation.
0: So let's skip forward. You did the Prince William Sound first time in 1987. We'll come back and we'll talk about Inside Passage in a little bit, but you went back and did Prince William Sound again in 2014. So what was different between those two trips?
1: Okay, um, in 2014, I went by myself. I uh, I decided over the years, I've found that I I accomplish more and I get more done and see more of of stuff that I want to see when I go by myself. When I go with other people, I guess I I don't want to sound like I'm great or anything, but sometimes they get held back because they get tired and they want to quit or they can't paddle as far as I want to paddle or they can't handle something that i want to try so i decided you know what i'm just going to do these things by myself and just test myself so in 80 in uh, 2014 i went by myself drove up there went to whittier and launched from whittier paddled for two weeks across prince william sound to valdez and then i got on a ferry in valdez and uh went back to whittier on the ferry and then just uh Made my connection back with my vehicle and took the trip and headed home. All right. So that was, was, saw some different territory. Saw the same territory that I saw in 87, but saw some new stuff. Went up into some different fjords that I didn't see in 87 and uh, saw some more ice flows and just different scenery.
0: Uh, The experience itself, so if we talk through the things that you saw in 1987 and then saw them again in 2014. Was it was it that much different?
1: Well, by 2014, I had paddled the Inside Passage twice, mm-hmm. so I was pretty used to seeing some of this stuff by then. So in 1987, all of this stuff was new to me, and by 2014, I had paddled through Alaskan waters for f- four months, if not more,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, so I was I was used to I was used to the waters. I was used to camping used to dealing with the rain the you know it, it just was all wasn't anything new anymore so i was able to handle it a lot easier
0: but how about the impact of uh of people you know did you find more people in 2014 uh, more cruise ships all that sort of thing
1: no not really the okay. uh the only other people i saw let's see i ran into a couple of guys that were kayaking one day they were the only other people i ran into kayaking um I only saw cruise ships off in a distance and only once or twice in those two weeks. But what you see mostly is fishermen. Mm -hmm. You'll see uh, fishermen out there and and crabbers. And you'll see the boats that that are moored in these little bays where the fishermen bring their catch and sell their catch to these uh, floating buyers. And then they go back and fish some more so that they don't have to go all the way back to port to sell their fish. Yep, it's all interesting to see how different people do things in different parts of the world like that.
0: Sure. Now, in the course of that two weeks, you only saw two other paddlers, though.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't remember seeing anybody but these two guys. And I was, I mean, I went there in the middle of the summer. Most of the people that I saw that go to uh, Prince William Sound, they go with a group. Um, they seem to go, like, with one of the, uh, not, I wouldn't want to call it a tour guide, but they go with a group where they might stay with the guide for four or five days a week maybe. So there, there might be ten kayakers all in one group. They I just happen to not run into any anybody like that.
0: Uh, that's a little more committing route too, to go from Whittier to Valdez.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was in a different part of the sound than maybe the uh the tour groups would go. They might go somewhere else.
0: So let's let's uh, skip around a little bit. A little bit. So and uh, let's move off the sound. And 2007. By this time, you had already done uh, Prince William Sound once, and you had done some trips up in the uh, uh, Pacific Northwest. And so you decided, 2007, you're going to start the Inside Passage. So tell us about that.
1: Well, I drove to Bellingham, Washington and I took uh, the local ferry to uh, an island called San Juan Island and I launched from San Juan Island and left my vehicle with a friend who uh, took it back to Bellingham for me on the ferry and I paddled from San Juan Island, crossed into Canada in my kayak and paddled up uh, the side of Vancouver Island to Port Hardy at the north end of Vancouver Island which I'd have to look at a calendar to remind myself it's been so long, but it probably took me two or three weeks to do that. All right. I wanted to test myself and test my equipment and see if it was something that I really wanted to do. And by the time I got to Port Hardy, I knew I wanted to do it. You know, I wanted to go the rest of the way, but I needed to change uh, some of my equipment and I needed to also plan food and mail food ahead to different post offices that I was going to, make contact with along the route, kind of like what people that Hike the Appalachian Trail do. Mm-hmm. They mail food to post offices. Uh, I had a plan, all that. So uh, between 07 and 08, I got the equipment that I needed and uh, set up all the food. Went back in 08, drove up to Port Hardy and arranged to store my van at a campground. Started paddling, got to Skagway. Took me uh, about a month and a half to get to Skagway and got on the ferry I so i got on the ferry at skagway and went to prince rupert in british columbia and got off the alaska ferry at prince rupert and changed over to the british columbia ferry and uh took the ferry to uh, uh port hardy okay so um got back to my vehicle that way
0: so oh seven you paddled from uh uh where did you start again i'm sorry
1: of uh, San Juan Island. Yep. So if,
0: from San Juan, you paddled up to Port Hardy. Right. That was 07. You can, kind of, that's, right. that's your first, you're kind of your shakedown, right? Right. Right. Was that your first big solo?
1: I guess you could say that. Okay. Yeah, I guess so.
0: All right. So you learned some things there. You kind of figure out what you, what you knew, what you didn't know and mm-hmm. made, made additional plans and then 2018 or sorry, 20, 2008 finished it off.
1: Right. All right. From Port Hardy to, to uh, Skagway. Okay. Alaska.
0: So tell us about some of those things that you learned and how you applied those.
1: I learned uh, just some equipment techniques that I, that I didn't have quite right. Uh, the rain gear. I had, to, I had to tweak the rain gear, get, get that situated correctly. Um, the tent was a main thing. I was using in the 07 trip. I was using like a conventional tent. And what I did in 08 and what I did in subsequent trip in uh, 2012 was I switched to what I call a pyramid tent. It's a big square tent with a, with a high center pole, just one pole in the middle. And the thing that I like about it is when I'm inside the tent, I can look all around the tent. I can, I can be inside a tent, even if I'm sleeping, I can just raise up my head and I can look 360 degrees all the way around the tent and see out. And when you're in bear country, it helps to know that there's not a bear right outside your tent that uh that you can't see so uh that worked out really good having the pyramid tent as opposed to a conventional tent where you kind of closed in
0: so is that one um it's so it's just it's basically a tarp so there's open um open sides
1: yeah it's got open sides but the one you can get different types the Mm -hmm. one i've got has a mosquito net thing on the inside okay and like i can what i do is i connect two corners to my kayak so my kayak acts as an anchor for one half the tent and then i take uh, stakes and i stake out the other side and i get the and then i get underneath it with a with a single center pole and push up the center pole and instantly once i've done that i've got rain shelter okay so like in 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 less than five minutes i can have a rain shelter set up And then it's got a mosquito net interior that once I've got the exterior set up, I can unroll the the mosquito net interior and just lift the center pole slightly and slide the mosquito net between the pole and the tent at the apex of the tent and then spread that mosquito net out. And now I've got a mosquito net interior. Okay. So that's one way I did it. And other, other times when I didn't feel like fooling with the mosquito netting, I just didn't put the mosquito netting up. And I would just sleep inside of a bivy sack and uh, put the bivy sack had mosquito netting so I could cover my face while I was asleep. But I just wanted to have something that I could get out of it real quick and that I could see all around me while while I was in the tent. OK, because a lot of times even, you know, there, there would be days when um, it would be raining and I wouldn't want to paddle because either rain or wind and I'd be stuck in one spot for one or two or three days. So it was comfortable to be able to have a big space to move around in and that I could see all around me, you know, what was behind me, what was on the sides of me, that type of thing. All right. So that was that was probably the main thing that I discovered on the uh, 07 trip that I changed on the 08 trip.
0: So did you only carry that pyramid tent from that point?
1: I did bring a small, a very small tent for the... A very few times uh, I was able to sleep in a tent. Like some, a few times I had to sleep on boat docks. Okay. And if I was on a boat dock, I wasn't worried about bears. And the tent I had a, a very small tent that I brought with me. It wasn't very big, didn't take up much space or weight, and I could sleep on a boat dock with that. But that's the only reason I brought it was to sleeping on the boat docks.
0: Okay. So that um, that pyramid tent. If it's open in the sides, how'd you keep the rain out?
1: Well, it's usually the rain up there doesn't come down real hard. It's not like a blowing rain. It's just like a drizzle rain, and and the rain just drips off the edge. And almost every place you camp along the Alaska coast and British Columbia coast is gravel, so the rain would just drip off the tent and go right into the gravel. Okay. And it wouldn't it wouldn't like collect underneath the tent.
0: So you mentioned one of the reasons you, uh, you carried that was so you could see what was around you. So tell us about bear experiences.
1: Um, the only time I came, close to, I came close to two bears one morning when I was packing up to launch, and I could see them when they were about 50 yards away. This was north of Ketchikan. And I could see them walking towards me, and they were just, they were just rummaging through the, the driftwood, looking for things to eat in the driftwood. They weren't really paying any attention to me and they were just moving real slow, so I decided I was just gonna hustle up and get all of my stuff from where I, had, where I was camped up high on the beach down to my boat near the water's edge. And by the time I got all my stuff down to the boat, they were right where the tent was. That was my closest encounter with a bear. I'd see bears often from the boat while I was paddling during the day. I'd see them on the beaches and I would see bear tracks in some places i had a wolf uh run right up to me really one time i i saw a deer came running through my camp one day just south of the canadian alaska border and a deer came running through my camp and he ran out into the ocean and started jumping through the shallows parallel to the shore and i said okay that deer is not doing that for nothing you know mm-hmm. something's chasing it so uh, I got my camera ready and my bear spray ready and I, was, I stood up and I was watching and nothing happened for 10 or 15 minutes. So I said, oh, well, I must, must have been wrong. So I sat back down and started cooking again. And all of a sudden a bear, came, uh, not a bear, uh, a wolf came running out of the woods and he was less than 10 feet from me. And we both startled each other. You know, <laughs> we were standing there face to face. And as soon as he saw me, he turned in his tracks and headed back into the woods. Uh. Ah. so that was that was kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, but, so, um, There's a close encounter. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and when you when you when you're sleeping at night, you can hear things moving in the woods, and you know there's brown bears out there. So naturally, you're gonna think the worst. You're gonna think that it's a brown bear, but more often than not, it was. It was just weasels and skunks and small little animals like that, different animals that you see along the shoreline. But I never had any bear, you know, where I had to uh, spray a bear or anything like that. You know, nothing, nothing that I had to try to shoe off. So, and you you got to take care. You got to make when one of the things you have to do is when all the clothes that you wear and that you bring with you. You can't wash it in regular detergent before you leave on a trip. You have to wash it in unscented detergent. All right. And when you when you pl you know you have to you're gonna have to wash your clothes while you're on the trip. So what I did was when I would send food ahead to different towns, I would in each food package I would send a little a little Ziploc bag with unscented uh, laundry detergent in the food bag in the food package. So that when I did my laundry at that town, I could I could wash my clothes with unscented soap. Okay. Because the scented soap is going to attract the bears as much, if not more, than food would. Hmm. And, Interesting. Uh, I, I never really had to cook anything. What I would do is, before I'd leave on a trip, I would dehydrate my own food and pack it in um, vacuum bags. And then when I'd uh, get out, to, when i get to my campsite, I would... Un, un, uh, open up one of the, the vacuum bags and let the food soak in some water for a while and then uh, turn the heat on and just let it heat up for about 10 minutes and then eat it. And so the, the entire time I was fooling with the food was probably no more than an hour total. So there was not a, never a lot of cooking going on where the, the smells could attract any bears. And I never had any bears try to get at my food overnight even though I had them in two bear canisters, they never they never bothered the bear canisters. I'm not saying that it can't happen. I was just real lucky that it didn't happen to me.
0: Sure. And you've had a num- uh, four trips to be able to to say that it worked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, how many days was the um, let's see the 07 and 08 combined between the two? How many days there?
1: You know, I don't remember the exact number of days, but I do remember this my my 2012 trip that i did in in one go Mm -hmm. it was 79 days of total and 63 days of paddling okay and when i compared it to the total number of days paddling and the total number of days on the water to the 07 and 08 trips it was almost identical but i I don't remember the exact numbers for the 07 and 08 trips okay but it's close to two or three days off of the 63 days of paddling and uh 79 days total okay because you know when you get to these towns you don't want to just hit the town one afternoon and leave the next morning you know you might not ever be in ketchikan again (laughs) you might not ever be in petersburg or Wrangell again so you kind of want to see the town you know and you want to eat eat breakfast or lunch or dinner at a a restaurant and you know get some restaurant food in you and uh, maybe sleep in a, a hotel or a, a hostel, you know, you take a bath. You sp- you'll spend two or three days in a town. And then sometimes you're stuck at a campsite well, due to bad weather for two or three days. So the, that, those days add up, the days that you're not paddling. It's not that you don't want to paddle, but you either want to see the local scenery or you can't paddle because of weather. About sixty-three days to paddle, and about seventy-nine days total for both of the trips.
0: So the Inside Passage is not all, um, not all wild, I guess. Um, how many? Uh, how how often do you come across towns?
1: I guess on average, about every ten days, something like that. Okay. Um, when you're going along Vancouver Island, there's a lot more communities that you pass. There's there's houses along the shoreline and that kind of thing. But north of Port Hardy. Once you once you get north of Port Hardy, you're now in, in the wild. There's there's no more people's houses along the shoreline or anything like that. You're in totally wild country. There's little communities like there's one in British Columbia called Shearwater, where people with power boats go and they refuel and there's a there's a grocery store, a modern totally modern grocery store and totally modern restaurant and a modern hotel and a few uh, a few people live there in the summertime and in the winter time they move somewhere else and come back the next summer but uh, you'll see places like that and you'll see in villages. Clem too is one that comes to mind and um, there's a few other ones and then once you get into one the last thing you see in British Columbia you see uh, Prince Rupert and that's a fairly good-sized town that's one of the ferry stops and then once you leave Prince Rupert, a couple of days later, you cross the border into Alaska, and then you pass through the towns of, uh, let's see, Skagway, uh, Skagway, shoot, it's been a long time, Ketchikan, <laughs> Ketchikan, Petersburg, Juneau, Wrangell, and uh, Haynes, and then Skagway
0: so 0708 and then you did it again in 2012 and uh, you mentioned right. you did it all in one go uh, for right. that one so other than being all in one shot how was that trip different
1: it wasn't really that much different it was just i just i wanted to do it and i knew i might not ever have a chance to do it again so there was uh, there, wa- there was no point where i ever said you know i'm ready to quit you know i'm i'm looking to, to go home i just said nope i'm doing this I wanted to get it done, so uh, there wasn't anything really different about it other than it was just one big long trip. Okay. It was about they were about the same as far as experiences and weather and places that I camped and things like that. It was just about the same.
0: Any big different uh, ecological impacts, uh, human impact, anything like that, like we were talking about earlier?
1: Um, more cruise ships. Okay. There was a, there's starting starting to be a lot more cruise ships up there. You can hear them coming and you can smell them when they pass with the diesel fumes. It's strange at nighttime to see them pass at nighttime. You know, all of a sudden you see this, you're in the complete darkness, and then all of a sudden you got this lighted city passing you by. That's <laughs> kind of unusual. And all the little towns, when a, when a ship lands in one of the towns and a few thousand people get off, it changes the, the aspect of the town. Probably that's one of the only things that was a big difference. But you're constantly seeing people in different types of powerboats. If you needed help, there's very few times when there wasn't people around. Like one day I got stranded, or for a few days I got stranded in bad weather in this little cove uh, just north of uh, the U.S.-Canadian border in the United States, and uh, in Alaska. And along with me being stuck in this cove with the bad weather were about four or five fishing boats. And um, I could hear them talking and I could hear their radios. So, I mean, there was people around, but, uh, you know, I wasn't, in ne- wasn't necessarily in contact with them. I-, I knew they were there. You don't have much uh, contact by phone. Your phone's not going to pick up too often. So um, you have to have VHF radios. You can contact the boats by VHF radio and the fishing boats. And then you can contact the, uh, the people that run the ports, the, the different people in the, uh, the harbor masters. You can contact them and you can contact the Coast Guard. I had better electronic devices with me. That was one thing that was different in 2012 is I had uh, different devices that if I needed help, I could just push a button and it would send an SOS. So that was something I didn't have in 07 and 08. I had them in 07 and 08, but I had more advanced ones in 2012. I've even got something more advanced now where I can actually send texts
0: mm-hmm.
1: via a satellite. It's like a, a little, it's called InReach, And I use the InReach if I need to. I, every day I, when I get to shore, I would send a uh, a text to friends back home saying I was safe on shore for that day. That type of thing.
0: So even with all those, uh, you know, the cruise ships, the fishermen, um, the other power boaters and pleasure boaters, does it feel remote still?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not so much that it detracts from the experience because even though you see in these boats, most of the time they're a mile or two away from you. You know, it's not like they're right next to you. So you see them, but you can't hear their engines usually and, they're just a dot on the horizon moving but you know that with your radio you could you could contact contact them by VHF if you needed to.
0: okay
1: so you, they're there if you need them but they're, they're not in your way.
0: So if you did the inside passage again, what would you do different?
1: I don't know. I think uh, pretty much pretty much the same as uh, everything that I did the last time. All right maybe tweak a little bit of the gear.
0: You've been paddling the same boat all, on all these trips. Yeah, yeah. Really? I bought
1: the boat. Yeah, it's it was a, it's an Easy Rider Eskimo Expedition, 17 foot, and I bought it on my first trip out to uh, Seattle. I went to the manufacturer and bought it direct from the manufacturer. I've, there's never been another boat that'll do what this boat does. Um, this boat's got the hatches. It's got two hatches and it's it's got bulkheads to to separate the, uh, the center compartment where the, where the paddler sits from yeah. the uh, cargo compartments. But the uh, cargo hatches are so big that you can put, you know, fully loaded waterproof bags into the, the hatch. Whereas some of the sea kayaks that are manufactured, I, I don't know how people use them, actually, because the hatches are so small, all your gear has to be in small, small uh, waterproof bags. Mm-hmm. And like I put my food in these in these bear barrels, and um, I can put two bear barrels side by side and fit them very easily through the hatch. And most of the sea kayaks that are made today, you can't even put those bear barrels in there. Yeah, they won't even fit through the hatch. And uh, so all my gear fits inside the boat. And you see a lot of other people in these newer sea kayaks that are they're very pretty. They they have sleek lines, but they have gear. Uh, stacked on top of their decks which makes them awkward make makes them more likely to turn over
0: sure like so, a container um, ship yeah
1: <laughs> my boat might not be as fast as some of those boats but when all my gear is inside and there, my boat's a little bit wider um it's very stable in rough water so um, i've never turned over in the boat and i've been in all kind of rough water all right. so uh the, the boat and unfortunately you can't buy that boat anymore the company no longer exists and to, to my knowledge nobody has bought the uh, the moles and started producing that boat model but maybe someday somebody will
0: well, that served you well yeah
1: yeah I'm, still, I'm using it this summer
0: good so yeah. what resources do you use to plan the trips
1: the internet a lot <laughs> <laughs> I print out uh, I found a company that you can get uh, access the charts, both Canadian and U.S. charts, and you can download the charts, and then I print out the charts on uh, eight and a half by 14 sheets of paper, and put them back to back and laminate them. So I have a real sleek chart system. A lot of people that see the way I handle my charts, I've had a number of people want to buy my charts, but. I want to keep, after I do a trip, I want to keep my charts as a memento. And when you, uh, download these charts, you have to promise not to sell them. Mm-hmm. So I can't sell them. So I just tell people to do what I did, just get online and download them and print them. All right. But, uh, that's, that's, uh, one of the things that I've, I find it works best for me.
0: All right. What other resources have you used to help, uh, help find, uh, it, or uh, uh, Ports and campsites and on all that.
1: Well, before I did my trips, I read other people's books uh, on the Inside Passage. A uh, guy named, uh, I think his name is Robert Miller, wrote a, a good book. And uh, a guy wrote uh, a book on the British Columbia section uh, called The Wild Coast. I read those books and got information on how they did... Uh, their trips, and then when I got finished my O eight 8 trip, I wrote my first book. Uh, it's called Point to Point. And then in 2012, when I came back from that trip, I wrote my second book, which I think is a bit better than the first book, called uh, Alone in the San- Alone in the Passage. And uh, so, I used other people's books before I did my trip, and then I guess you could say I tried to repay the favor by learning, taking what I learned and writing two more books about it.
0: Yeah. So you've got point-to-point, point, Alone in the Passage, and Alone in the Sound, right? Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So tell us what people might find in, the, in those books.
1: I've got complete equipment lists, everything I've used on my trips, down to toothbrush, the routes I took, where they can get information, where they can access the charts. i got all my campsite coordinates, I've got the type of uh, facilities that they'll find at uh, all of the municipal areas that they're going to pass through, all the towns, what to expect for weather, temperature, and wildlife, and just a day-to-day grind of paddling, how to how to get ready for it, how to be physically ready for it, mentally ready for it.
0: So I used Alone in the Sound as one of my resources to plan my own trip to the Sound a couple of years ago. Oh, good. good. Yeah, so thank you. That worked well. and. I have have uh, not had a chance to read alone in the passage, but uh, that might be a uh, one that I'll pick up here and okay. think about that trip myself.
1: I hope you I hope you get it and enjoy it.
0: Yeah. So where can people find um, find your books?
1: Well, the only place you can buy them is from Amazon. Okay. Because it's a self published book. When you order a book, Amazon prints you a book and mails it to you. If you don't want the paper book, you can get the book on a Kindle electronically. Yep. One or Differences with the paper, well, paper, I, I prefer paperback books, just uh, I'm old-fashioned, I guess.
0: Uh, I like the feel but, of a paper book, too. Yeah,
1: yeah <laughs> and you can take it with you, and you don't have to worry about electricity or whatever. <laughs> but the Kindle edition, all the photographs are in color, whereas in a the book they're black and white. And in the Kindle edition, all of the uh, hyperlinks, they work. I if when, when I mention something where there's a hyperlink for more information, you can just tap on the hyperlink and you go right to that information. So that's the difference between the two. But if you buy the book from Amazon for like a dollar or two more, they'll give you the Kindle edition. Okay. So you could get, you could get both. You could get the Kindle edition for like a dollar or two difference from just the paperback.
0: Good to know. We'll make mm-hmm. sure we put links in the, uh, in the show notes here so people can, can find those books and pick them up themselves. Okay, I appreciate it. Yeah, now you've got a couple blogs out there now, right? Yeah,
1: I got a blog for, um, actually, I think there's three of them. I don't, I, I'm ashamed of myself. I don't check them <laughs> often enough. I did one when I did the uh, the first 07 and 08 trip, Inside Passage trip, and then I did another one for the 2012 trip, and then I did one for the uh, Prince William Sound 2014 trip. All right. So there's three of them out there. All you got to do is search my name and Sea Kayak and, and all those links will just pop up in the search.
0: All right. So. We'll make sure we put those in the show notes as well so people can go right to them. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. Appreciate and, it. Uh, and you also manage a Facebook group for Inside Passage Paddlers, do you?
1: Yeah. the uh, Inside Passage Sea Kayakers Facebook group. Got uh, 1,300 members. Don't get as much activity on it as I wish, but uh, it is what it is. People uh, talk. that uh, are planning a trip will ask questions of people that have been on trips, and it's interesting to see the answers that uh, people give to the questions. And then other people that have done trips will post their photographs and list their experiences. So it's, it's pretty good. It seems like every summer a, few, a handful of people, maybe 10, 10 different people, do the inside passes that are connected to the group. You'll get bits and pieces of information from them. Very cool. And photographs.
0: So we'll, we'll include that link as well. So if folks want to go see that um, and follow along, the follow the journeys of, of other people who are doing the Inside Passage and maybe make their own plans, they can go there as well.
1: That'd be great. Cool. I think it would help them out.
0: Yeah. So, Dennis, you've been a great resource uh, to a lot of paddlers for both Inside Passage and Prince William Sound. So thank you for that. And I appreciate your time today. Uh, Dennis, I've go. got one final question for you. And that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue?
1: Well, there's a guy that I've met online. I've never met him personally yet, but we've had some uh, text back and forth. His name is John Dawkins, and it's John spelled J-O-N, and it's Dawkins, D-A-W-K-I-N-S. And he right. lives up in the uh, Seattle area uh, of north, northwest Washington. All right. And uh, he's done a lot of the... Uh, the stretches of the inside passage i don't think that he's done the entire thing but he's done a lot of the uh, uh pieces of it okay so uh, i think he would and he he writes uh, he's he's got a blog he's got interesting uh writings that he's that he's got up and a lot of nice photographs so i think uh, he'd be something that your listeners would uh enjoy hearing
0: yeah. from all right. Well, I will, uh, I'll work with you, and we'll make a connection to John and see if we can get him on the show as well.
1: Okay. Sounds good.
0: So, again, Dennis, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to talk to you today. It's been uh, enlightening to learn from you and uh, to be able to learn your experiences.
1: Okay, John. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with you.
0: Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions, along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler, and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water protect your body against common paddling injuries and while you're at it you might even lose a few pounds and who wouldn't mind that so visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion dvd dennis has been a great resource for many paddlers looking to take their own inside passage or prince william sound journey as i mentioned i used his book alone in the sound as one of my resources for a trip to prince william sound in 2021 We talked about three books in today's episode, but he also has a fourth that we didn't mention, Tactics for Long-Distance Sea Kayaking. You'll find links to all four books in the show notes for this episode, number 92, and I've also included links to his blogs for your reading pleasure and a link to the Facebook group. Thanks, as always, to our partners Level 6 and Online Sea Kayaking for extending special offers just for you. So if you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, visit their website at level6.com, use the coupon code PTBpodcast at checkout for 10% off your order. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and take advantage of the great video programming from James and Simon and other talented guests, including previous guests of Paddling the Blue. Just enter the code PTBpodcast at checkout, and you'll get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Our next guest is Brian Wilson, and Brian is the author of Blazing Paddles, a Scottish coastal odyssey, and dances with waves about his journey around Ireland. I look forward to bringing you Brian's stories and his message on making your adventure a reality. So until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue.